Welcome to Allons Travailler, a show where I read interesting books and apply them to my daily life and write short reviews and share them with you so you can decide for yourself how you want to spend your reading time and your reading life. This episode is about the book Super Forecasting. I've titled this book review, All of Life is a Wager, Overcoming Cognitive Biases and Becoming a Super Forecaster. If you want to learn about cognitive biases all humans share, you might start with Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, or the paper he wrote in 1974 with friend and colleague Amos Tversky, Judgment Under Uncertainty, Heuristics and Biases. There are also solid summaries on Medium. But actively applying your newfound knowledge may prove difficult. After all, just because you know what biases you have doesn't mean you can notice them at all times, nor do you need to. For example, most of the time you probably aren't consciously aware that your nose is in your visual field. You spend very little conscious attention on this fact. This holds true for many, many other matters of unconscious and even conscious attention. Our system one takes care of most decisions while system two is only brought to bear occasionally. But if we can get beyond what Kahneman called what you see is all there is, or what Tedlock calls tip-of-the-nose thinking, then we can begin to employ strategies in overcoming cognitive biases when and where they matter. Philip E. Tetlock and Dan Gardner have given us an interesting way to practice doing so in their book, Super Forecasting. In their story about a relatively small group of super forecasters who beat IARPA's own government-backed researchers in a tournament of geopolitical forecasting, Tadlock and Gardner provide a blueprint for beginning one's own journey of forecasting better than the average human, or at least better than you yourself do now. We are all forecasters. One of my favorite writers and thinkers is Christopher Hitchens, who once said, All of life is a wager. By the way, this aphoristic phrase was ironically uttered when asked about his smoking and drinking habits, which might have contributed to his cancer of the throat. Nevertheless, the sentiment strikes me as true and powerful. Even if I do not take on the challenge of becoming a super forecaster in the sense of Doug Lorch or Bill Flack, which are two of several super forecasters described in the text, or find myself at a conference table being presented with probabilities that Osama bin Laden is located at a specific compound in Abbottabad, then I can still apply an improved process of forecasting and the informed decision-making that follows to my own life. Gaining comfort with probabilities and uncertainty. Some parts of this book were a review for me. When a meteorologist reports there is a 70% chance of rain, I am not surprised when 30% of the time it doesn't rain since this is precisely what the forecaster predicted. Where this can trip people up is in the prediction of important events, where a 30% chance, say, of a political candidate winning might have a considerable consequence. Unlike the weather, which is forecast daily, political elections are one-time events. 
I've played around 3,000 hours of poker at a competitive level, often against pros who made a living doing so. And in order to compete, I needed to acquire more than mere heuristics for survival and an occasional flurry of profit. For tough or close decisions, I would consult a legal heads-up display, which monitored my opponent's batting patterns. If, based on a reasonable sample size, I could gather from the opponent that my opponent was, say, 70% likely to fold to a third raise before the flop, and his hand range for continuing with a second raise was greater than 30% of hands, then, accounting for the pot size, this third raise I was about to make was easily profitable in the long run. I could have no buyer's remorse if I ran into a big hand and had to fold to my opponent's fourth raise. I routinely made decisions like this in a matter of seconds across four to eight tables. This repetition quickly inculcated me to profitable behaviors in the context of No Limit Texas Hold'em. The heads-up display was a reminder staring me in the face to make the correct decision, even if various mental roadblocks conflicted my conscious decision-making, either from distraction, fatigue, or anger at an unfair bad beat a few seconds prior at another table. In short, I was able to overcome some of my cognitive biases in the narrow context of the digital felt. Questions that affect my life. I like to get value from my reading through immediate application. The early chapters prompted me to consider questions I love to forecast, mainly existential questions, musings about human progress, and my own place in society. Here are three questions. Will we have an artificial general intelligence by 2042. How long before my novel is accepted by a top-tier agent? My top 20. Will it ever happen? And finally, will creative storytellers be in high demand in 10 years? As I read on, I found some of my questions too difficult to answer according to Tedlock, mostly on account of their time horizons. Instead, I should look for Goldilocks zone questions not too easy, not too hard. Clarity matters too. Tetlock and Gardner used Steve Ballmer's prediction that Apple's iPhone wouldn't achieve significant market share to illustrate why the language matters. First, Ballmer's statement from 2007. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance. Tetlock explains that this prediction lacks a time horizon and clarity. What does significant mean? What does market share mean? In the extended interview of Bomber, he also asserts, again, to repeat, there's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance. It's a $500 subsidized item. They may make a lot of money, but if you actually look at the 1.3 billion phones that get sold, I prefer to have our software in 60% or 70% or 80% of them than I would to have 2 or 3% which is what Apple might get. The authors used data from the Gartner IT Consulting Group to show that in the third quarter of 2013, iPhone sales made up 6% of global mobile phone sales. The only question remaining is, does the iPhone's presence at 6% represent significant market share? From this perspective, Bomber's statement isn't as outlandish as it was made out in the press. Better questions. I narrowed my own field of questions. If I made forecasts, I could then place more informed wagers in my writing projects. These were two of my questions. 
Which book genre and subgenre on Amazon will underperform beginning of year sales expectations by year end? And in the next six months, how likely am I to land a second ghostwriting job for a business related book, having already achieved the first? In the first case, prediction would allow me to take an extra writing project in an area where demand is underserved. In the second, I would be able to understand my near-term income sources and take on very smaller projects if I decided that probability was low, say under 20%. But first, I'd have to make a forecast. In the next section of super forecasting, I learned about creating a thesis, antithesis, and synthesis to form preliminary forecasts. I was particularly drawn to the concept of aggregation, which I feel serves to check the limits of one's own information and knowledge against others thinking on the same question. How we ask questions matters, or fermi-izing questioning. Before the internet, Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi famously asked his students, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? Now, there are four questions that will help us answer this question. The number of pianos in Chicago, how many piano tune, pianos are tuned each year, how long it takes to tune a piano, and how many hours a year the average piano tuner works. Answering these questions without any research information requires the ability to make estimates from prior knowledge about Chicago's population, the number of households and businesses which may own a piano, and how often pianos are tuned. For my own question, I would need to apply similar logic. Again, here's my question. In the next six months, how likely am I to land a second ghostwriting job for a business-related book, having already achieved the first? Questions to begin asking might be, one, how many business people are seeking ghostwriters in English? Two, what is the likelihood of beginning a conversation with those individuals? And three, how likely, once a conversation has begun, am I to emerge as a chosen writer for the project? Interestingly, answering the first question will probably improve my chances considerably. This is an advantage of using the forecasting methods prescribed by Tetlock and Gardner to one's own projects. You can affect the probabilities by your own actions. This is different to, say, making a prediction about geopolitical events. Base rate and adjustments to forecasts. But there is much more. Many factors will help me assign my starting probability or base rate, such as other in-flight projects that draw my attention away from any scheduled business development or samples I'm preparing for potential clients. Once established, though, this probability would change over time as I adjusted my various routines. What's more, I could improve the overall probability by allocating time to activities that I learn will markedly improve the probability of the outcome that I want. Also, and humorously, my fluctuating desire to achieve the goal may also influence the probability from day to day. Tedlock writes about the importance of using the outside view to establish the base rate before adjusting it with the inside view. Otherwise, in my example, on a day where the sun was shining as I looked out from my renovated flour mill apartment over the Mississippi River, I might inflate my expectations. All my projects. Then I realized I could assess many or all of my current work and writing projects with this methodology, creating something of a personal work wager matrix. 
I probably won't do this, at least not immediately, preferring to allow curiosity to guide my, for example, week-to-week reading, as I did for this essay. I originally planned to read a different book today, but instead opened and closed Super Forecasting in just three sittings in under 24 hours. But maybe I'll improve in my analysis and forecasting and be able to make these sorts of calculations faster and carry a working spreadsheet of sorts to manage my, pro- <clears throat> to manage my projects in a slightly more organized fashion than my status quo. What will you forecast? Tedlock and Gardner's storytelling style, clear expectations, and memorable examples make this read an easy five stars. I'm already recommending to friends and family and colleagues who have begun, but not finished, thinking fast and slow. The main question I suspect many readers will leave with is, what should I spend time forecasting? If this happens to you as it did for me, then Tetlock and Gardner will have succeeded. If you want to skip the book and try your chops at forecasting right now, you can also learn more at goodjudgment.com. Further reading, I recommend, having skimmed uh, these in the text, are Isaiah Berlin's The Hedgehog and the Fox, The Success Equation by Mo Boussin, and Expert Political Judgment, also by Philip E. Tetlock, which um, was the early research ahead of this book. I also need your help in one other way. Can you help me find Doug Lorch's methodology for serving himself a news article or book from a wide range of political leanings and sources? Apparently, according to Tetlock, this super forecaster has created a program to do just that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Allons Travailler, book reviews of what I'm reading every week. These come out every Thursday, and I hope to see you next week. Until then, salut.